Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Suicide is a common phenomenon, but difficult to research, and patients with suicidal thoughts are often excluded from clinical studies. Therefore, a systematic approach is helpful in clinical practice. This study evaluated suicidal thoughts in relationship to depressive symptom severity and reasons for living in patients hospitalized for major depressive disorder. The authors conducted a post-hoc analysis of a randomized, double-blind, parallel group trial involving hospitalized patients with major depressive disorder who received duloxetine 60 milligrams once daily or twice daily for eight weeks. After four weeks, the dose for non-responders receiving 60 milligrams once daily could be increased to 60 milligrams twice daily. The study was conducted at 43 centers in four countries across Europe and South Africa. Suicidal thoughts were assessed with the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale Item 10. Depression severity was assessed with the six-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale and the Clinical Global Impressions Severity of Illness Scale. And protective factors were assessed with the patient-rated Reasons for Living Inventory, measuring six domains. At baseline, patients had varying severity of suicidal thoughts. The Reasons for Living Inventory scores at baseline were lower in patients with higher baseline suicidal thoughts and increased significantly during treatment. Eight patients had suicidal behavior or ideation recorded as an adverse event during the study. No consistent pattern was found in the different psychometric scores at baseline or at the visit preceding the suicidal behavior or ideation. Suicidality rapidly decreased in hospitalized patients with severe depression treated with duloxetine. Patient management with antidepressant therapy improved depression severity, and the reasons for living became prominent. This study was supported by Eli Lilly and Beringer Ingelheim. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder symptoms often begin during childhood but can persist into adulthood. Generally, ADHD has been considered to preferentially affect boys over girls because of reported differences in childhood ADHD prevalence rates. However, gender differences in adult ADHD prevalence rates are substantially smaller than childhood differences suggesting that childhood ADHD symptoms in girls are being missed. This narrative review describes factors that may contribute to the underdiagnosis of ADHD in females and describes strategies to assist in its accurate diagnosis. It is important to note that attitudes about ADHD among individuals with the disorder in their families, teachers, and colleagues vary based on the diagnosed individual's gender. Suspicion of ADHD is low because the prominent symptom of inattentiveness in females is less likely to be noticed. 
than the disruptive behaviors resulting from the hyperactivity and impulsivity seen in males with ADHD. As a result, females with ADHD are less likely to be diagnosed because their symptoms are less overt. Females with ADHD may also develop better coping strategies to mask their ADHD symptoms. Lastly, anxiety and depression are common comorbidities in females with ADHD. Characteristic symptoms of these disorders may be seen as the primary problem, resulting in the missed diagnosis of ADHD. Because a missed diagnosis of ADHD can have negative long-term consequences, including low self-esteem, poor academic and work performance, and persistent behavioral problems, it is critical for clinicians to have greater awareness of the distinct presentation of ADHD in females and to improve diagnosis and treatment in this population. Shire Development provided funding to complete healthcare communications for support in writing and editing this manuscript. Anxiety within major depressive disorder is a clinically common phenomenon that is traditionally thought to be harder to treat than depression without anxiety. In reviewing the literature, the authors of this issue's continuing medical education offering found that dimensional anxious depression, defined as major depressive disorder plus a component of anxiety, as often measured by rating scales, is responsive to traditional antidepressants, such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and tricyclic antidepressants. However, patients with anxious depression often do not stay well for as long as patients with non-anxious depression. In addition, patients with anxious depression suffer from more side effects. Stratifying patients by depressive subtype is becoming increasingly important as a way to predict response to treatment. Indeed, being able to discuss the likelihood of side effects and overall prognosis with patients is a critical step towards the personalization of medication regimens within psychiatry. Anxious depression appears to be a clinically relevant subtype of depression that warrants further exploration. Funding for this work was supported by the Intramural Research Program, National Institute of Mental Health, National Institutes of Health, by a NARSAD Independent Investigator Grant and a Brain and Behavior Mood Disorders Research Award. Aggressive patients are not uncommon in acute inpatient behavioral health units of general hospitals. Prior research identifies various predictors associated with aggressive inpatient behavior. This prospective observational study examines the demographic and clinical characteristics of aggressive inpatients and the routine medications these patients were receiving at discharge. 36 adults diagnosed with a DSM-4 mental disorder who met two of six established inclusion criteria for high violence risk and a clinical global impression severity of illness scale score greater than or equal to four were observed for a maximum of 28 days on the 23-bed case mixed acute behavioral health unit. 
Results showed that younger males with a history of previous psychiatric admissions, violence, and severe symptoms of agitation were more at risk for aggressive behavior. Also, a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, substance use, and positive psychotic symptoms such as hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, anxiety, agitation, depression, and disorganization contributed to aggressive behavior. Patients significantly improved with inpatient treatment, and aggressive patients most often experienced a significant reduction in symptoms of paranoia. Participants' severity of illness and levels of aggression were related. Rehospitalization rates for aggressive patients were high, which suggests that patients with aggression issues are difficult to treat and keep in compliance on an outpatient basis. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder is an underdiagnosed, undertreated, often comorbid and debilitating condition in adults. This review by Ginsberg and colleagues, which was supported by Eli Lilly, is based on 97 articles that were selected for inclusion due to their relevance and importance in ADHD research. In a large proportion of children with ADHD, symptoms persist into adulthood. However, although adults with ADHD often experience chaotic lifestyles with impaired educational and vocational achievement and higher risks of substance abuse and imprisonment, many remain undiagnosed or untreated. ADHD is usually accompanied by other psychiatric comorbidities, such as major depression, anxiety disorders, and alcohol abuse. Indeed, adults with ADHD are more likely to present to a psychiatric clinic for treatment of their comorbid disorders than for ADHD, and their ADHD symptoms are often mistaken for those of their comorbidities. Untreated ADHD in adults with psychiatric comorbidities leads to poor clinical and functional outcomes for the patient, even if the comorbidities are treated. Effective treatment of adults with ADHD can improve symptoms, often leading to favorable outcomes such as safer driving and reduced criminality. A few medications have now been approved for use in adults with ADHD, and a multimodal approach involving psychotherapy has also shown promising results. The authors conclude that general psychiatrists should familiarize themselves with the symptoms of ADHD in adults in order to diagnose and manage ADHD and comorbidities appropriately in these patients. Bipolar disorder is a chronic episodic illness characterized by recurrent episodes of manic or depressive symptoms. Patients with bipolar disorder frequently present first to primary care, but the diversity of the potential symptoms and a low index of suspicion among physicians can lead to misdiagnosis in many patients. Frequently co-occurring psychiatric and medical conditions further complicate the differential diagnosis. This review article describes key decision-making steps in the management of bipolar disorder from the primary care perspective, from initial clinical suspicion to confirmation of the diagnosis to decision-making in acute and long-term management and the importance of patient monitoring. 
a thorough diagnostic evaluation at clinical interview combined with supportive case-finding tools is essential to reach an accurate diagnosis. When treating bipolar patients, the primary care physician has an integral role in coordinating the multidisciplinary network. Pharmacologic treatment underpins both short- and long-term management of bipolar disorder. Maintenance treatment to prevent relapse is frequently founded on the same pharmacologic approaches that were effective in treating the acute symptoms. Regardless of the treatment approach that is selected, monitoring over the long term is essential to ensure continued symptom relief, functioning, safety, adherence, and general medical health. Limited data exists on prevalent use of bright light therapy, a first-line treatment for seasonal depression, as well as a consideration in non-seasonal depression. The authors of this study conducted a five-minute email survey of practicing psychiatrists in the Massachusetts Psychiatric Society to evaluate prevalent use of light therapy and examine attitudes towards this treatment modality. Three emails were sent out in March 2013 over a two-week period, and an iPad was raffled off to incentivize participation. Roughly 200 responses were obtained out of more than 1,300 delivered emails, yielding a response rate of 14%. 72% of respondents indicated that they recommended light therapy use. All but one of those who recommended light therapy did so for seasonal depression, but only 55% consider it effective for non-seasonal depression. Only 11% of respondents who recommended its use would consider its use in inpatient settings. Lack of insurance coverage for light delivery devices was identified as the principal barrier to use overall. However, lack of knowledge regarding light therapy was the leading barrier cited by those not currently recommending its use. In fact, three of four respondents not currently recommending light therapy cited lack of knowledge as a barrier. The principal limitation of this survey was the low response rate, so these data should be considered preliminary. This limitation notwithstanding, the use of light therapy appears largely limited to outpatients with seasonal depression and suggests that the role of light therapy in other conditions, such as non-seasonal depression, or among psychiatric inpatients remains unappreciated. The funding for this study was provided by the Gennaro Ancampura Charitable Trust through Boston University Medical Center, Department of Psychiatry. Involuntary commitment of an outpatient, particularly in the primary care setting, represents an important and challenging issue at the interface of ethics, law, and clinical practice. If you have ever worried about the mental health and well-being of your outpatients and wondered when and how to obtain more extensive psychiatric evaluation and treatment, then the article in this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital section should provide useful. The authors present the case of an outpatient for whom involuntary commitment was considered and provide an overview of the approach to the psychiatrically unstable outpatients. 
Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, as well as timely case reports, a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.